0: So, it's Monday the 19th of October in Melbourne today. After Premier Dan Andrews gave his 108th-ish consecutive press conference on Sunday, it feels like we're finally coming out of this lockdown. It's been one of the longest strict lockdowns in the world. I think the scariest thing about this for a lot of people has been the abrupt interruption of routines. I've been fortunate enough to keep a lot of my regular routine. I can go into work, I try to exercise every day, and I manage to keep up the regular rhythms of my life. But a lot of Victorians don't have this luxury. For so many, it's the loss of the little things like getting the train to work or leaving the office to pick up your lunch. Others might have been working towards some goal, maybe working out at the gym every day. For elite athletes competing for a big event, there's a very strict routine. Training starts to be mapped around whenever the next event is, changing shape and ramping up as the big day approaches. So when the 2020 Olympic Games were cancelled what happened to the thousands of athletes reaching the second to last stage of their four year training cycle? Hi, I'm Marco Holden-Jeffrey, producer of The Kicker. This week, our reporters Madeline Spencer and Maeve Bannister speak to athletes and trainers who have all had their plans dashed by the rescheduling of the games. It begins as an interesting look at how these athletes are keeping fit and busy during lockdown, but it evolves into a really important discussion about athletes and mental health, and how this event-driven cycle could even be a bit harmful.
1: 2020 Summer Olympics. Now the latest major sports cancellation caused by the International COVID-19. Olympic Committee
0: bowing to global pressure.
1: The International brought Olympic on by
0: the Committee and Japan's Prime
2: Minister it's announced the 2020 Summer Olympic All Games but, sir, will,
1: be summer will be postponed until summer end. Will be The inevitable has finally been confirmed. An Olympic Games in a few months is simply not viable. Four years. For some, that's a university degree or a relationship. But for elite athletes, that's roughly 4,990 hours of training to reach the next Olympics. Maeve and I are the first to admit that we're not very sporty people, and the mindset of an elite athlete is far from our own. But we were interested in their ability to sustain such focus on a career defining event like the Olympics.
3: So when the Olympics were officially postponed at the end of March, We wanted to look at what impact this has had on the raft of elite athletes waiting to make their Olympic dreams come true. What goals did they have to change and how did it affect their training and plans for the next year?
4: It's just tough when you don't have an end goal. We'll sit down in September and be talking about next September and then sort of plan it back from there. But when you don't have anything to plan back from, then you sort of, left in this limbo where it's like okay well I guess we'll just run for a little bit and wait till something comes up and then we can do the planning back phase.
3: You just heard from Pat Tiernan, a 26 year old Australian track and road runner. For him the postponement of the Olympics meant low motivation and questioning what the next step would be.
4: Simple things like even meeting with my coach like he's nearing 60 so things like that we weren't able to do anymore. So yeah it It was something that I didn't think, didn't really think about at the time, but it was a routine that was pretty critical to how everything was moving. And I was in really good shape, honestly. Like I was feeling pretty good about it and we were sort of getting ready to build off of off of that.
1: To have his training fall apart in March was disappointing for Pat. But surprisingly he realized the postponement may be more helpful in achieving his goals.
4: So yes, I was really excited for it this year. I think I you know, like I said, I was in I'd got through the hard preparation phase through March and then after that it's more racing and getting your, your tactics right and sort of fine-tuning the details and whatnot. So I think I was in a really good position to to compete well. But yeah, I mean, if anything, this just gives me more time to, to prepare for that and, um, and be excited. If
3: 2020 has taught us anything, it's that we're a lot better at adapting to new situations than perhaps we thought. Speaking to Pat made me realise that sometimes things just Don't go to plan and you adjust to make it work. He was way more relaxed about it than I probably would have been if I was training for something for years, only to be told to wait a bit longer.
1: Yeah, I'm not too sure I would be quite as chill with that either. But it seems this relaxed attitude extends beyond just Pat. I spoke to Paul Burgess, the head coach of pole vault at the Western Australian Institute of Sport, who talked about having
3: to let go in uncertain times. But before we get into that, Maddie, I wanted to know one crucial thing. What does a coach actually do?
2: More and more I'm realising the sort of leadership role that you need to take on and getting the athletes to buy into what you're trying to get them to improve and to be on board um, with what you're doing. And also managing a team of support staff. That's probably the main part of coaching I would say, is people management and leadership.
3: As a coach who loves being with his athletes in person at training sessions almost every day, coronavirus restrictions put Paul to the test.
2: We actually saw it as quite a good result because it got postponed rather than cancelled. And then I must say the day we all sort of got sent home from work, from waste, it was felt grim. It felt really grim. Life is going to continue to change as we deal with the global coronavirus.
1: When they were initially sent home from work, Paul tried his best to remain positive for his athletes.
2: First of all, we said, have a break for as long as you want. And that was tough. You want to, as a coach, the temptation is to keep control of things. So we had to say to them, look, have a break for as long as you want and come to us when you want to start my program. And I think that was good in not putting too much pressure on them. They actually came to us sooner than we thought, wanting some structure and wanting some programming.
3: And like Pat, it seems as though Paul has found this year to be a positive for his athletes, and it might have actually taken some of the pressure off them.
2: For us, it's actually put us in a better position. Some of the athletes that were ready, I think, are in a position to be in a better position than they were going to be in this year. It's given them an extra year, and it's even opened up the opportunity for some who might not have been ready this year to perhaps give themselves a shot next year.
3: We tend to focus on athletes' physical strength and capabilities but not so much on the mental challenges they can face. And especially in a year when everything's been thrown into disarray.
4: It's tough, I think the mental aspect of it more than anything is, is the hard part, like the physical part is, you know, we're used to that. That's what we love about it. It's the mental games that you just play with yourself going into a championship where you start to think, there's a lot riding on this, there's four years worth of work behind it. Like, I don't wanna, don't wanna mess it up now.
3: Between June and July this year, the Australian Institute of Sport reported a 50% increase in athletes seeking mental health support compared to the same time last year. But it's something that the federal government is aware of, and the AIS says that government funding in the past two years has allowed Australia to become a world leader in athlete wellbeing.
5: There's a variety of different things that athletes go through in the course of their careers and the, the sports psychologist is there really to, to help ensure that uh, mentally athletes can, um, can take on those challenges as well as possible.
3: Dan Diamond is a sports psychologist for elite athletes. His role is integral in an athlete's support team. He educates on skills and strategies to thrive under pressure, supports athletes through hard times and helps them back following an injury, to name just a few of his jobs. While Paul and Pat tried to focus on the positives
1: of the postponement, Dan has seen that it hasn't been easy for other Olympic hopefuls.
5: In my experience with the athletes I'm working with, the Olympics being taken away and postponed a year, or potentially indefinitely, has really played havoc with life plans because a lot of athletes are looking to transition. A lot of athletes from Olympians do transition out of sport once, they, once they've achieved that. So there's created a huge amount of uncertainty, as it has for everybody, but certainly for athletes as well.
1: But sports psychology as a field is growing, thanks to more and more conversations about mental health in society.
5: Actually, I think sports and athletes, in some cases, are are really pioneering that destigmatisation. So that's really important because obviously we look up a lot of this as our society looks up to athletes. So that can be really helpful for, for younger people as well.
1: Over the last few years, we've certainly seen a shift with athletes speaking out more about their personal mental health struggles.
0: It's been a fun career and now I get to kind of go back and look at everything that I did. You know, I was always going in from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and, and now I finally get to look at the medals and realise what happened in the 20 plus years that I was swimming.
3: From Michael Phelps in the documentary, The Weight of Gold, to Australia's own Libby Trickett.
4: <laughs> Trickett in four, let's see how she comes up. She's already just taken the lead. It's very tight across the pool. Stubbins
6: we spoke to Libby success. about her
1: mental health journey and her role as a Beyond Blue ambassador today.
6: It's an interesting question to talk about mental health as an elite athlete because not that it's like last on the list of things of importance, but I think it definitely didn't take um, sort of precedence in our minds at the time. You kind of have this, this idea that, you know, to be the best in the world, you have to think that you're going to be the best in the world. And it's so self-critical. It's trying to constantly be better. And if you're not better, then you're not good enough.
1: As someone who has faced anxiety and depression throughout her lifetime, Libby knows firsthand the importance of being mentally as well as physically healthy to compete as an elite athlete.
6: We're much more willing to take care of our bodies physically, whereas we're less likely to go, oh, I'm feeling really, really flat today. You know, I'm feeling really anxious. So maybe I should go and, you know, book an appointment with my psychologist or check in with the GP to make sure that I'm, you know, doing the right things that I can take care of my mind as well as my body.
1: As a three-time Olympic champion, Libby is familiar with the immense pressures involved in competing.
6: At the time, again, you're an athlete and you kind of think you're six foot tall and bulletproof and (laughs) that you'll be able to cope with whatever life throws at you and you are like you are able to do that but I think a lot of athletes feel a need to prove themselves in some way and a lot of that is about proving whether it is the negative self-talk or you know people doubting them in what they might be able to achieve trying to prove that to be wrong and so yeah it can be an interesting thing to try and manage that as someone who's now not an elite athlete and how do you channel that negative self-talk into something positive that you can create in your life.
3: Libby has had an extensive career as a former world record holder and seven-time Olympic medalist. Now retired, she has had time to reflect on what she's learnt from her experiences. I I have felt it really
6: challenging because what I used to do was very public and so people used to watch my journey and, you know, celebrate um, my successes and, you know, feel for me if I didn't perform so well. And so in some way people will always know me as Libby Trickett, the swimmer. And that's something I really railed against when I first retired, particularly in 2013, when I retired for the second and final time, I was frustrated that people will only know me as Libby Trickett, the swimmer, because I felt like I was more than that, but I didn't know what
3: that was. Libby is focused on her role as an ambassador for Beyond Blue, an Australian mental health and wellbeing support organisation.
6: I just think the work that they do across the spectrum of mental health and mental illness is, is remarkable. So I would probably like to work more behind the scenes, if I could, um, in contributing to, I guess, changes in how we normalise the conversations that we have around mental illness and mental health I mean, obviously, my first love was elite sport. We need to make sure that we're creating people who, yes, can perform on that world stage and overcome different obstacles and have that resilience to achieve at that highest level, but who come out into the world and are good people and who feel good about themselves. It's not dependent on their performances in the pool or on the field or whatever it might be.
3: Perhaps one of the hardest parts of being a coach is the balancing act of getting your athletes to work hard and take it seriously and do their absolute best, while at the same time getting them to realise that even though the Olympics is important, it's not the be all and end all.
2: Well, I sort of try to get them to think their happiness shouldn't be reliant on one thing. You know, if they're thinking, if I make the Olympics, then I've succeeded, and if I don't, then it's all been a waste, then they're doing it for the wrong reasons anyway. I mean, part of that should be it should be a rewarding process regardless, and there's other things that you can be aiming for.
1: But I mean, that's really something that's easier said than done. Great highs and even greater lows for athletes before and after the Olympics can lead to the post-Olympic blues.
3: And research shows that setting goals provides focus and markers of progress, but that when the Olympics is over, those goals become irrelevant. And that causes many athletes to lose focus, feel lost and lack direction. The athletes
6: who have been able to identify something that they really love to do outside of their sport make that transition into the real world easier because they have the next thing that they're working on and the next passion that they Can sort of put all that energy into because as an athlete, you are so you have so much energy, you have so much drive, you have so much passion, and you're channeling it all into this one thing. And so, when you don't have anything to put that into, it can become quite toxic and negative. So, I definitely would recommend myself trying to find that passion. But having said that, it's through the life experiences that I've had through mental illness and losing myself. Uh, that I've really discovered this passion of, of talking about mental health and mental illness and those experiences and, and wanting to understand that more and, and ultimately going to study it.
4: Can she do it? Five metres to go. Libby trick, it's going to go mighty close. Not quite, but don't be fooled by that smile. She is as competitive as it gets. That's 12 national titles.
1: It's probably fair to say that something most 25 year olds don't really think about is their retirement. But for young athletes like Pat, it's something that's very much a reality. The older they get, the more likely it is that they will not be able to compete at an elite level.
3: Yeah, and I think Pat says it best when it comes to putting things into perspective.
4: That's the other hard part about sport is you've got to realise that there is an end date and you've got to have something. It's not even a backup plan, it's like the next plan, the next stage in life. So you know, it's not, it's not gonna be the same sort of um, love that I have for running, but it's gonna be a different sort of passion that I pick up over time. And I'm still still figuring that out, but I'm luckily enough to be in the position that I am, that I have time to figure that out.
0: Thanks to our amazing reporters, Madeline Spencer and Maeve Bannister, for this episode. The Kicker is produced by Ariel Richards and myself, Marco Holden-Jeffrey. Special thanks, as always, to our executive producer, Janak Rogers. Next week on The Kicker, Katie Johnson and Sam Mills speak to the Victorians who found themselves turning to alcohol more than ever in our lingering lockdown. In the meantime, we're on Twitter at kickerpod and Instagram at thekicker.pod. Follow us to stay up to date with everything The Kicker. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. It really helps. Once again, thanks for joining me. We'll see you next week.
1: Sponsored by The Student Doll. Our theme music is by Jack Jevons.
6: This podcast was recorded, mixed, and produced on the stolen lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded.